At Baptist Health South Florida, it's our mission to care for you when you're injured or sick and help you stay healthy and fit. Welcome to the Baptist Health Talk podcast, where our respected experts bring you timely, practical health and wellness information to improve your family's quality of life. We've all heard the saying that food is fuel, so it's important to be mindful of what we put in our bodies. It gives a whole new meaning to the saying, you are what you eat. I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Fialco, a preventive cardiologist and leader at Baptist Health South Florida, and I recently had the pleasure of hosting Baptist Health's Resource Live, where I spoke with three experts from across the Baptist Health family. They were able to talk about the importance of being aware of the food you're consuming, how it can affect your body, and in turn your health. My guests were Amy Kimberlain, a dietitian at Baptist Health's Miami Cardiac and Vascular Institute and a lead in the Miami Cardiac and Vascular Institute's Prevention and Risk Reduction Center, Dr. George Sanchez, a gastroenterologist at GastroHealth, and Lisa Davis, who's a leader at the Cardiovascular Prevention and Risk Reduction Program as well at Baptist Health's Miami Cardiac and Vascular Institute. Let's listen in. Well, let's jump into this interesting topic. Um, I know we've all spoken prior to this actual um, um, resource live regarding our perspectives on this topic. Um, but let's start with Amy. Amy, when we talk about clean eating on social media and other headlines, these types of buzzwords that are out there, can you tell us what is clean eating? Is it beneficial? Are there any concerns? Let's dive into that um, that term a little bit. All right. The term clean eating, I use air quotes in a clean diet, is really not regulated here in the United States. So it's really kind of interpreted by consumers quite variably, you know, and again, even how it's marketed as well. So overall, general clean eating, it's being assumed, right, that you're referring to foods that are as close to their natural state as possible. So maybe organic, most likely minimal use of chemical additives and preservatives, but that eating pattern would include whole fruits vegetables, lean proteins, whole grains, and healthy fats, while limiting ultra-processed foods that could have the added salt and sugar. Now, I do just want to follow up and utilize the idea of thinking that this term of clean eating, it really could take on a different meaning if you're starting to set up these unrealistic, unrealistic expectations of thinking that you have to eat a certain way. And again, with it being the new year, with it being kind of, again, thinking towards making these lifestyle changes and improvements, if you think it's leading you towards taking on too rigid of a schedule, not kind of paying attention to your hunger cues, even eliminating a whole food group, you know, I think ultimately we have to kind of weigh the benefits versus the not so great benefits, right? If that could lead to being too preoccupied with eating healthy. So I'll talk throughout today just about how to implement small changes that can really make a big impact and looking towards the long term and what's sustainable. I think that's well said. I think throughout this segment, we'll be talking about certain recommendations, but it doesn't mean this is an absolute and you cannot deviate in any way for whatever reason you may have. That can lead to its own problems around uh, whether it be you know eating disorders or anxiety or various other concerns. So hopefully the viewers will take that in mind as we have the conversation. One of the things about clean eating, again, uh, you know, we, we use the term people take very complex situations to try to narrow it down. And we say, you know, hey, listen, eat food in its most natural form. And one of the aspects of that we always say is like shop the out the outsides of the supermarket, right? <laughs> Don't go down the hallways, but everything in its outside rim is usually in its most natural form. So maybe you'll get to those types of tips down uh, in later in the segment. Um, Lisa, um, you know, uh, in the prevention center, which you and Amy are, are principals in regarding uh, preventing significant bad cardiac outcomes, death, heart attack, stroke, and then kidney failure. 
what are the ways people can reduce their heart-related outcomes, prevention being preventing those bad outcomes? Um, how can people reduce their risks overall, just in a general recommendation? And then where does food or macronutrients or what we eat come into play? Yeah, so we know that there are several risk factors for heart disease, and uh, the more risk factors you have, the higher the risk is of developing heart problems. Um, some of these risk factors can include high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, smoking. Um, unfortunately, there's no magic formula to say if you eat these foods and exercise this amount per day or per week, you're going to avoid heart disease. But there are definitely things that we can do that can absolutely lower our risk. Um, and and uh, for example, when it comes to food um, and and um, beverages, we want to, for, for example, we can avoid too much alcohol, not saying you can never have a drink, but we know that excessive amounts of alcohol can increase your risk of heart problems. Um, avoiding super certain foods that we know have really no nutritional value that are higher in sugar and salt, such as chips and sodas and sweets, again, lack the nutritional value. Um, and uh, those, those foods can increase our risk of developing certain risk factors, which can increase our risk for heart disease. For example, eating large amounts of these Highly processed food can increase our risk of diabetes, metabolic syndrome, and high blood pressure. And again, having those things can increase our risk of, of developing heart disease. So it's not a one-size-fits-all. Fit all. There's not necessarily one food to avoid, but making smarter food choices, as Amy alluded to, is really what we want to be focusing on. And, and, and as you said, there's no one-size-fits-all, which I think is something else for the viewers to understand. What works for your neighbor or family member may not work for you. Very customized where you are in your uh, disease state, where you are in, let's say, a weight gain state. Um, some of the recommendations might be a little, a little different, so keep that in mind as well. Um, George, get, let's get to more um, um, clinical aspects, um, certainly related to food and major complaints that food may actually cause or certain dietary changes may improve. And that has to do with, you know, a gastrointestinal system, stomach, gas, let's call heartburn. Um, are there certain foods that one may eat that can cause those chronic problems? And, um, um, or is it more like individualized how your body reacts to the foods? In other words, is this food gonna cause it? Or it's more someone's body individual will react to some food. But the bottom line is, are there certain foods that are more likely to cause the more common gastroenterological symptoms of heartburn and bloating? Right. So I, I think the answer to that is both. Uh, both the foods that we eat, some of the foods can increase gastric acid production. Uh, it could delay emptying of the stomach or delay gastric emptying and also relaxes the lower part of the esophagus, which then facilitates reflux. Uh, of So know, a true mechanical, mechanical. Um, right. Um, absolutely. Um, and a lot of these foods are the foods that we we tend to hear and know about. Uh, spicy foods, tomato-based products, alcohol, caffeine, chocolate, uh, you know, a lot of stuff that we love, but unfortunately, sometimes it uh, makes our symptoms uh, poorly controlled. So it's, it's a combination of both. There's, there's both a physiologic reaction um, and an anatomic issue with it. Do you, do you tend to tell people, try avoiding this and see if it's better, or you just give them a list and say, avoid all those? And, and if you do that, what percent of the patients that you see are, would you say, able to actually make improvements? In other words, they do it and it works or, you know, what's your experience in terms of the, uh, the outcomes of your recommendations? So when they come in for the consultation, I try and find out what foods may trigger them. Uh, as you mentioned previously, there's not one size fit all. So, you know, 
patients that may not be able to, may not experience reflux symptoms uh, with certain foods, uh, or, or maybe they uh, don't know that these foods can, can cause their symptoms. So I try and find out what trigger foods uh, can do it. Uh, not, it's not just about foods also, John, it's also about their lifestyle. So how we eat, the timing of eating, uh, if we're eating and laying in the recumbent position, if smoking is additive to this or not, uh, having a well-balanced lifestyle with having exercise, enough water intake, and, and really just moderating what we intake. If we're uh, having an excess of coffee, for example, uh, I could prescribe whatever medications and they could take whatever lifestyle uh, modifications, but if they don't limit some of the intake, they're, they're going to continue to experience symptoms. Well said. I want to come back to some of those comments you made in, uh, in, in a few minutes. Um, Amy, Are we going to add on stress? Well, please. I mean, that alone can exacerbate symptoms as well. So just kind of finding a, a way to how he, he said, you know, it's not so much just what you're eating, but how you eat as well. So what do you mean by that? I think I may, I may have um, uh, spoken over your first comment. What was what were you saying? Well, I, I think stress, stress. It impacts how foods can impact how we feel as well. If you're eating in a short amount of time, did you really end up digesting it or did you inhale it, right? So the how we eat is a critical impact and then stress beyond, right? What we can control versus not control is really important. So right? some of the things about being mindful of how we eat and, and then eating slowly or, or again, timing not right before bed as, as George mentioned and stuff. Um, yeah, the so other aspect to that is also overeating. So when we're stressed out, we tend to go for comfort foods and sometimes we may overeat. And uh, that again, it's trying to ease some other uh, anxiety that we may be experiencing. So what I think you guys are articulating, which I think is well served, our viewers are well served to understand is these are, you may complain of heartburn, reflux, gas, and you might say, what is the one thing causing it? But it's probably complex as lots of things that go on in a person's life that can contribute to it. And should it be something dangerous or should it be something they want to improve, the more they understand and the more they look at, the more they improve, the better chance they'll feel better and do better. So uh, good points. Um, Amy, I think this is a good question. In the in the you know, this inflationary age where food costs are, are going um, higher than many people can expect or even tolerate, talk a little bit about the concept of organic foods. Uh, what does it mean to be organic? Is there a certification process? Is it more of a marketing term? And what does it mean to an individual? Uh, and generally, organic foods, it's safe to say, are more expensive than foods that are not labeled organic. Is that is that is that premise correct? Correct. Starting with a first basic definition of organic versus conventional is the term I'll use, right? That definition from the USDA, whether it's meat, poultry, eggs, dairy products, um, it's given no antibiotics and no growth hormones, right? And additionally, moving forward with organic plant foods, so your fruits and vegetables and grains, they're not using conventional pesticides or fertilizers or anything made with a synthetic ingredient, right? You have someone come out to the farm, they inspect the farm, and they have to adhere to these standards in order to be deemed organic farming. And those are the standards set in place. And then when you termed it, like you mentioned, like the marketing aspect, what can they use on a label? Some things can be 100% organic, or they may say made with organic ingredients, so it's not completely 100% organic. But I do want to mention that even still, when you look at a side-by-side -side comparison with organic versus non-organic, the conventional, there's no nutritional advantages within those two separate realms. In the studies that they've looked at, vitamins, minerals, everything is still there and you're still getting the good stuff, if that makes sense, right? Um, so I think sometimes it's deemed to be better for you, but at the end of the day, nutritionally speaking, the same, right? 
Additionally, as well, you mentioned the cost. Not everybody can obtain something that is organic. And then you have lists out there that may utilize terms to show like what is more healthy versus not as healthy to utilize. But I do just want everybody to know that organic foods still do use pesticides, right? It's just, again, the idea behind it that they're not utilizing it at all. And I think that that's a big kind of misnomer. And again, even moving forward, conventional are just as safe as organic. So I don't know, for me, I, I see patients. And again, when you have these discussions with them, you're looking at one in 10 Americans are eating their fruits and vegetables. So is it a fear of concern, right? And then they can't afford the product or is it the fear of it being, you know, with something that they think is not safe, but yet we know they are safe. It's due to the level of exposure and the amount right consumed. And I think that that takes into account when you look at those, those lists, as I'm mentioning, all of them are safe. You would have to eat like almost 770 times amount of spinach in order for it to like create an issue. And we're not even meeting the mark with one serving. So, you know, again, all products are safe that are entering into what we're eating. Yeah. So, I mean, organic has a connotation. Sometimes people think it's small farm or locally you know, locally sourced, which of course is is not the case. So I think you're, you're, I, I really love your final comment, which is concentrate on the big changes you can make in your diet. Eat the food in its most natural form, a form of, and then if you want to fine tune things like organic or grass fed or things like that, feel free to, but we see people who concentrate on spending more for organic, but they have a very unhealthy diet. You know, the potato chips with the organic, you know, uh, blueberries, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. Okay, there's, there's, a, there's a blueberry, there's a blueberry plant. There's no potato chip tree. So you know, keep that in mind. Okay. Um, Lisa, going back to the cardiovascular conditions again, um, where I think a lot of uh, um, uh, poor nutrition and current lifestyle and social trends uh, leading to this increase in, or contributing to this increase in heart disease. So we talk about foods that are bad for you, if you will, and that would be the processed, refined foods, like you said, uh, maybe, you know, processed or refined. I mean, fats are different, although a lot of saturated fats are associated with, um, um, you know, cured and foods with a lot of preservatives and stuff. So again, you know, we, we, we want to stay away from those types of foods. But are there any kind of foods that are good for you when we look at, say, healthy diets, whether it be you know, talking about the Mediterranean style diet, dash diets. What are the what are the foods that we want to promote as more healthy for cardiovascular uh, avoid cardiovascular disease avoidance? You know, I think it's it's a it's a great question, and I think it's interesting because I think at least once a month you see something in the news or on social media talking about what the sort of superfood of the month is, and you eat this, and you're going to be deprived of of all negative health, uh, you know, effects, including heart disease. And uh, I think it's important to know there's not necessarily that one superfood out there. And what I try to tell patients is let's overall, you know, what everyone's been saying is let's just overall look at what we're eating. And and I think that in in today's society, we're, we're rushed, we're on the go. And so we're looking to grab quick foods and oftentimes that might lead to poor choices. And so I think just maybe doing a little simple meal planning and if... Um, we have a choice of snacking. I think it's just as easy to do uh, some carrots, an apple, a cheese stick, some nuts instead of grabbing the bag of chips. Um, and and same thing with meats. When we're looking at, we're not necessarily you, you can never have any red meat, but try to stay away from the ultra processed meats, which we know can lead to uh, you know negative health consequences. So eating good proteins. Um, I, 
making smarter food choices. For example, if you're going to start your day with yogurt, avoiding the yogurt that has the fruit mixed in the bottom, that's going to be loaded in sugar, instead, maybe get a plain Greek yogurt and add some fresh berries. So I think overall, it's not necessarily one superfood. It's not necessarily one food that we know is, is going to be the healthiest choice. But overall, just making smarter food choices can go really a long way in, in reducing your risk of heart disease. Well, well said. And I think for the viewers, think of yourselves critically as to, you know, I think in our in our program, in our clinic, um, uh, prevention center, again, Amy and Lisa, we see this quite often, the person who, you know, comes in smoking, and maybe, you know, 50 pounds overweight with Big Mac sauce on their shirt, and like, look, I took this magic acai power powder, and it's gonna, you know, it's like, like, you know, it, it, there's no secret single thing that's going to make you healthy, especially if you have unhealthy lifestyle. So, right. so don't fool yourself that way. So look for that healthy lifestyle. Avoid otherwise. Yeah. No, sorry. I was just going to add in, as you were saying, and it just made me think we have these ideas behind like what is a healthy food and yogurt is one of those health halo foods. Absolutely. We, you know, consider it to be like the patient may like, to your point, think that they're doing something for the better for them. And yet then when you break it down and you show them the added sugars on the back, it really, truly just emphasizes that what they thought they were doing may not have been the best. And, and, you know, even plain yogurts have a difference. The old Greek yogurt, which is just totally natural, and then some of the more processed plain yogurts. So look at the label. Anything that we say, anything that has more than three or four ingredients, throw it away. You know, look at look at the, the sugars and whatnot, and you can really be fooled sometimes. So um, that comes to what Amy does, which is teach people how to uh, eat healthy and recognize when things are marketed that might be healthy. It's not. I always tell people, don't eat anything. Any food makes a health recommendation run away. You know, don't, it's, it's, it's a marketing thing. Always eat food because it's natural and it's most uh, unrefined um, natural form and, you, and you'll be okay. Unprocessed form. Uh, good stuff, guys. Um, let's keep going. Um George, uh, going back, you know, I, I think we talk about the different foods and we keep going back to the old reflux, but it's such a common food-related ailment. But, you know, I think your answer when we, we talked about before is very cogent, but I want to unpack something again, because I think many viewers have or know someone that has these symptoms that they either ignore or try to manage on their own. So go through again a couple of the things people can combat reflux um, from a lifestyle and a food standpoint, but but then get to the main point, which is when should someone seek professional help? When does pop and tums become, wait a minute, you know, you really should check it out. What are the concerns, if you will, of someone who might have a chronic reflux? Right. So we we talked about the foods that can make our symptoms. And we all we all reflux every day. Everybody refluxes. It's just a matter if we're having symptoms uh, or not, and if it's impeding our, our day-to-day activities. So we're making the right food choices as we as we we've discussed. We're making the lifestyle modifications, eating smaller, frequent meals, not overeating, avoid eating late at night, avoid tobacco use. And once we're doing all these changes, if we're still having symptoms, aside from the periodic, either Tums, uh, Famotidine, or maybe even Omeprazole you could buy over the counter, if, you, if you're taking these medications and your symptoms are still present, then at that point, I would seek help and see, listen, is this normal or not? Because if you're treating yourself and you're still having symptoms, or symptoms could be progressing. If you're having unintentional weight loss, you're having frequent vomiting, food isn't going down as easily as it once did, or food seems to be hanging up. Those are all concerns where I would say you definitely need to see a gastroenterologist and get worked up uh, from the you know from an expert. And while less likely than just the routine reflux you described, what are some of those medical conditions would be concerned with? 
with regards to if you have you know food getting hung up or if you oh, have well i mean the the uh, my biggest concern is when i hear weight loss or food getting stuck is could there be an esophageal cancer uh, so that's something that we could diagnose early on it's uh, we could intervene on it and and get treatment so that's why some of these things i've seen patients that have have been self self medicating or self treating for a period of time and uh, more so than i would have wanted them to and unfortunately, they come in and, you know, we could have probably diagnosed early. Uh, intervention early is always uh, a good thing. So definitely some of these symptoms we could intervene on and, uh, and diagnose. And I think that is the most significant clinical recommendation we would want our viewers for this segment to, to understand. Reflux is most commonly, as, as George described, but when it becomes a little bit more uh, associated with other symptoms or findings with weight loss or if it persists, get it checked out sooner rather than later. Um, Lisa, um, let's talk about hormones in food production and you can talk about other ingredients and stuff, but, you know, again, these big food lots, these big multi-step, multi um, large, you know, food, uh, industry, uh, food producing industry, um, any information you can give us regarding hormones in the food production and if, and how it may affect, um, our, uh, humans and our cardiac health. Sure. Um, I, Definitely, let me start by saying I don't claim to be an expert in this topic, but I know that hormones and antibiotics and steroids are, are added to the beef and dairy industry for several reasons. It can help with fertility, enhance production of meat and dairy. Um, and there's been a lot of you know studies really looking at the effects of this. And, and as Amy spoke of earlier, it's important to note that um, even if hormones, steroids are added, um, the, the concentration that we actually get in our food of what we're in ingesting is really quite low. Um, and while there have been reports um, and studies looking at the relationship between beef consumption, particularly red meat and processed meats, and increased risk of heart disease, there's really no clear evidence that the added hormones were directly the cause of this. Um, another thing to look at is the chemicals that are added to food, which are used to uh, lengthen shelf life, perhaps enhance uh, taste or, or appearance. And as we said earlier, a lot of these ultra processed foods also have higher levels of sugar and salt. They lack the vitamins, they lack the fiber, they lack the protein, and those are the things that promote good health. So if we're looking at sodas and fried foods and, and cookies and processed foods, um, there's evidence that people that eat large amounts of these foods have higher incidence of heart disease. So what is really causing it, the sort of cause and effect, um, you know, we could say, oh, people that eat a lot of red meat are, are they have a higher incidence of, of heart disease. And we can debate that, right? Um, not really necessarily a lot of evidence, but are there other maybe negative health consequences of that? Dr. Sanchez might, you know, be able to talk about that a little bit further in terms of, you know, gastrointestinal effects, but we need to be really careful about making that cause and effect um, and to say, oh, these foods have hormones in them. Therefore, it's the hormones leading to the higher incidence of heart disease. And I, I think that there's no real evidence to show that that's the case. Yeah, I think, again, this is for the viewers, the high level of, of thinking in a way. Um, I always say uh, nutritional science is an oxymoron almost. <laughs> there's so many, you know, if you look at someone that eats a lot of cheeseburgers and French fries, well, look at all that fat, but it's also bun, ketchup, which is a sugar sauce potatoes, which are starches, they eat it with a big soda with sugar. So is it the lifestyle that brings in a lot of refined processed foods that's associated with that item you're looking at? Or is it the item 
we don't really know. We haven't shown it one way. So what correlates with things and what actually causes it? For the viewers, again, little tips. If you see an article in the paper that says something may cause something or may not cause something, run away. Because that doesn't yes. mean that that thing caused it. It just could be associated with the same thing, right? Sunglass sales go up in the summer and drownings go up in the summer. Are people drowning because they are buying more sunglasses? Of course not. It's the heat and the sun and et cetera, et cetera. So little, little uh, tip there for the viewers as we go forward. Uh, yeah, my little bit of uh, education there, my little lecture there. Um, um, so enough heartburn. Now let's talk about other <laughs> <laughs> gastrointestinal things. But the reality is um, we do see people's tolerances to certain foods change as they get older or with other conditions. So what are the more common things where you'll see someone and they start complaining for months or even years of something and it comes back towards, well, you're no longer tolerating this food or some other ingredient. And talk a little bit about other things that people can eat that can affect their gastrointestinal system and specifically more towards what happens as we get older in certain areas. Right. So the, the most common thing is going to be lactose or uh, intolerance or lactase deficiency. So we see that as time goes on, as we get older, we're not going to tolerate lactose products as well. And uh, patients come in and they say, well, you know, I don't have milk, but we have to remember that it's not just milk, but, you know, also cheese, butter, ice cream, yogurt, all these things uh, are with lactose. Um, so that's what are that's, the symptoms of lactose intolerance? What do people generally complain of? So bloating, discomfort, loose stool. Um, those are those are the main ones that they start to experience, uh, usually almost immediately afterwards. And, um, you know, a, a lot of issues with having to use the bathroom frequently uh, or excess flatulence are going to be the most common things that we see. Um, then there's also uh, whether you have gluten intolerance or gluten sensitivity or, or celiac disease. Um, now we have a lot more, uh, you know, friendly foods available, but some patients may not tolerate it as well. So they can choose to abstain from it. And they also present the same way. Um, so as, as time goes on, there's certain things, there's also other comorbidities that could affect the fact how we're able to digest foods or medications that are involved that could affect the way that uh, we're able to uh, digest certain foods. Um, we are what we eat as we're all right. <laughs> as we're, we're ending where we, uh, where we started. Um, great, great show guys. Great answers to the question. Somewhat difficult. A couple of things from the audience. Let's see if we can go through a couple quickly. Um, Amy, two questions came in that are related. Um, does the timing of your meals have an effect on your health? And also maybe talk a little bit about intermittent fasting. Is that beneficial? So I would say that everybody has a different kind of rate of metabolism. My needs are different than those out there and their needs, right? So we have to base it on that. But I would say kind of what I've seen actually in this last week with some of the patients is you have this like kind of seesaw effect where like they're not eating enough in the morning and then later at night they're just overeating right so again i think ready you know steady energy throughout the day is really important for patients to be able to kind of hone in on those hunger cues and be able to really give their bodies what that they need i heard um dr sanchez mentioned you know the small frequent meals again i would say that may work for some people and then for other people it may be more of a larger meal three times a day right so i think you really have to concentrate on what your schedule is every day is different and know what your schedule is and almost highlight when you will be eating because sometimes when we go for too long without then we end up doing too much later and ultimately that can lead to indigestion as well <laughs> but as to the intermittent fasting it's the same premise you're looking at a certain period of time when you're eating and you're looking at a certain time when you're fasting and i think that 
ultimately there's different methods on how to do it. There are some studies that may show some improved signs of insulin sensitivity. So your insulin responding better, better fasting levels. But ultimately I need the patient to be able to do something that they can withstand for the long term. It's not a short term fix. If in fact it's that you're not eating early and then the late night is eating, I would caution you to almost kind of really reflect and say what's going on and why is it happening? Can I improve to make it better balance through the day? And then be more mindful as we call ourselves out. Hey, I'm munching later at night. Why am I doing this? Am I bored, stressed, anxious, all of the above? And be able to really make some changes towards improving that long term. Yeah, I agree. I, I think of intermittent fasting as a trick. Um, it works, but it may be give people a jump start or create a period of dropping your into your insulin which makes you you know which will make you less hungry and lose weight a little bit but you know there's no magic to it in any other way so I appreciate that and then quick question George if you can answer this and then we'll just wrap up with some final comments um probiotics um prebiotics and probiotics do you discuss them with patients is there any benefit of adding to the diet right so I I, I don't know right now that I could recommend probiotics or prebiotics for any particular state. I do discuss it and sometimes with patients with irritable bowel syndrome, uh, it's it's a flip of a coin. I'm not sure if it's gonna necessarily help, but it couldn't hurt. I wouldn't hang my hat on it saying this is gonna solve all my problems. Uh, and there's natural ways to get probiotics with fermented foods and so on and so forth. Um, so I discuss it, uh, we bring it up. It may work for some people, but not all. I wouldn't necessarily uh, you know, throw all my eggs in the probiotic basket. And similarly, don't concentrate on that and ignore lots of other things that have been or that you might be doing that may be contributing to ill health already. So uh, great stuff. Right. Well, so along, guys... along the along the uh, Amy, what she was saying, uh, I think meal prepping helps out. Also, uh, having a set plan. I know when we take the thought process out of it, it's going to make it easier for us to adhere to a schedule. Uh, so I know that you know I discuss that with patients. Plan ahead of time. Uh, so that you could at least have a plan of what you're going to eat throughout the day. Um, you know, I'm going to take an extra minute or two since a good question just came in that I think is worthwhile. I'm going to send it to Lisa. Hopefully Lisa and I will come to blows over the answer. <laughs> um, talk about a plant-based diet. What's meant by a plant-based diet? Are there any concerns, uh, any recommendations towards it if you can? Um, yeah, and so I'm going to start by saying that um, I know that a lot of the information could be really confusing for patients. And I see patients all the time that are getting conflicting advice from their various healthcare providers. So, you know, this can definitely be a whole segment in, in and of itself. But um, I, I see a lot of patients that come in that are thinking they're eating really healthy um, on a plant-based plant diet or that vegetarian diet. And uh, they have to type two diabetes and they're eating a lot of carbs and their sugars are, are through the roof. And so I think this is really where we need to focus on. It's not a, a one size fits all. And I think that this comes um, to the point where it's important to keep up with your prevention and talk to your healthcare provider because it's definitely not a one size fits all. But when you sit down with your health healthcare provider and you really go through your labs and you go through your risk factors, coming up with a real individualized plan, something that is sustainable is really important. And I think that's really what I want to focus and stress in this segment. So not necessarily recommending to everybody to do a plant-based diet. Some patients may benefit from that, but um, that's not going to work for everybody. And there's we also really need political... to look at what that means. And there's a political connotation as well, which it might be better for the food, for the planet and stuff, which also has some 
controversy behind it as well. But um, good answer for a difficult question. Anyway, you guys have been great. Thanks for sharing your insights. To our listeners, if you like what you heard on this or any of our podcasts, please be sure to tell a friend or family member about us. And if you have a comment or a suggestion for a future topic, please email us at baptisthealthtalk at baptisthealth.net. That's baptisthealthtalk at baptisthealth.net. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Find additional valuable health and wellness information on our resource blog at baptisthealth.net slash news. And be sure to interact with us on our social media channels for live and upcoming events. This podcast is brought to you by Baptist Health South Florida, healthcare that cares.